Hey, it's Tom Sullivan with Forging Ahead, and I've got Michael Phelan with me today. Michael, why don't you introduce yourself however you like to be introduced? Great. Thanks, uh, Tom, for having me on. Uh, my name is Michael Phelan, and I'm the principal of Go-To-Market Pros. Um, that's a consultancy um, based in Boston. You know, we focus on helping companies either come into the U.S. market or expand into the U.S. market. Got it. Um, sorry for butchering your name. I went Phelan. It's Phelan. <laughs> That's okay. A lot of people say Phelan in the U.S. and Phelan in Ireland, where I'm from. Got it. Okay. Um, I guess I'd love to talk a little bit about, instead of doing the normal um, sort of path thing, since you let off with something that you want to hit that I think we could spend quite a bit of time on, is net new prospect meetings. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, you know, over the past six months or so, um, I've done a lot of research on what actually drives a, a prospect meeting. Um, because the traditional um, pipeline, the B2B pipeline, always said that we're going to start with brand awareness, upper funnel, we're going to get to marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads, MQLs, SQLs, that's going to lead to meetings, meetings going to lead to opportunities and opportunities going to lead to sales. Um, so everybody's kind of following that path and methodology. Um, but it's fundamentally broken. And when you really look at it, um, I go in and um, audit the um, meetings generated by largely top technology companies in B2B. And I go in and talk to their salespeople and I have a detailed discussion of the last hundred meetings they generated. Um, and what I found is that less than 1% of them have anything to do with content marketing. Um, and it, it is really fascinating. And so we really get into a discussion of, you know, tell me your last meeting. How did that come about? How did you engage the person? How did you find the person? In some cases, you know, the people they reach out to aren't even in the database, aren't even known to the company. Um, so there's really no question. It's a cold call, email, text, um, and they're, they're doing their own research. They're finding net new people and they're reaching out. Um, so it doesn't mean that necessarily some of those people haven't seen some other content or haven't been exposed to the brand, um, but the way they're getting the meetings is, is completely uh, absent of the traditional demand gen side of things. Um, and then the other thing I found is, you know, they're coming up with really creative ideas to get new meetings. Um, so what I've identified is about 40 different approaches that sales uses to get new meetings. And um, it's kind of fascinating. And there's a lot being done about marketing attribution and pipeline attribution and meeting attribution and opportunity and revenue attribution. Um, and I think there's a smarter way of driving meetings than expecting uh, a white paper download to materialize into a meeting, which it rarely ever does. How did you first start to get suspicious that this was broken? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so being, you know, being in the world of, of consulting, you know, there's a big part of my life that's spent, you know, in a business development role um, and in generating new clients and all of that kind of thing. So, so half of my time is spent as any leader of a consulting company is, is working with new prospects and so forth. So I'm always kind of, you know, thinking about more effective ways of doing this. Um, and when I talk to VPs of sales, um, 
and they're honest and I have that one-on-one conversation, you know, they don't really want to say that none of their meetings are generated by marketing because it's political. They don't want to get involved in a fight, um, you know, with marketing. But when I ask them the question about who's responsible in the company for driving net new prospect meetings, you get kind of, well, kind of me. Um, and then you ask them, well, what is your what is your programs to drive net new prospect meetings? And you get kind of a blank face. So it kind of, you know, when you talk to marketing about, are you responsible for driving net new prospect meetings? They go, no, that's a sales job. Um, so it kind of is this kind of uh, point, even when I talk to agencies who are responsible for demand gen, and I say, why don't, why don't you drive programs that generate meetings? Um, you know, they'll go, well, that's not our business. We don't want to, it's harder to obviously to get a meeting than it is to get a visit to a site, an email open, um, or an asset download. Um, and what marketing says to sales is look at all the people that open up the email. Therefore, their prospects that are going to meet with you, call them up or look at all the people that have downloaded the white paper. But when you really talk to business people, you know, I don't know about you, but I download a ton, a ton of assets. I probably downloaded a hundred assets in the last three weeks. Um, if you ask me who, who, what the asset was about, I can't even remember. Um, if you ask me where I saved it, maybe I saved it some somewhere. Um, if you ask me who published it, I don't even know. But I always have the intention of going back and reading all this stuff if I'm like have time, but I never do. So, so marketing thinks this is a highly qualified lead that's about ready to buy the product, but it's really not. It's someone that's just interested in the topic they they can barely remember what the paper was, where they put it. They didn't read it, and they don't know who published it. So marketing goes to sales. You know, here's these great leads, man. You, you know, we we spent hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and we got fifty leads. And you should get meetings with all of them. And sales goes, wow, we can't get meetings with any of them. Why? Because um, the person that downloaded the asset doesn't even know you. And invariably, the salespeople call up and go, did you get the? Did you read the white paper? And the prospect goes, no, what was it about? The sales goes, I don't know. I didn't read it either. So it's kind of a stupid <laughs> conversation to begin with. Um, so we're investing a huge amount of money in what, what comes out to be more branding oriented. And that's not bad, but let's call it what it is. Um, and very little of it is really impacting the user in a substantial way. They're not interacting with the company. So I view... Um, a real lead as an interaction. It means a conversation. It means a text chat. It means back and forth on email. But if there's no interaction, for me, there's no lead. If they, if they, if they haven't actually gone back and forth um, in a B2B scenario, there's not much there. So, so I think the new metric for marketing needs to be net new prospect meetings. I think that function needs to be owned by sales. Um, with marketing support. And I, I think that it needs to be one metric for both teams. Um, if you look at the most successful B2B reps in the country, one thing is consistent. They generate more meetings than anyone else. They have more prospect interaction than anyone else. They generate more opportunities and close more sales. So I fundamentally think that this void um, on net new prospect meetings is is how it's broken. Does that make sense on how I got to that conclusion and, and why it's there? Yeah. And I read endless amounts of stuff about marketing and sales. And when people talk about pages converting and conversions in general, it's almost never meetings. 
Right. Um, how much friction do you first get when you show up? And like, my guess is working with top tech B2B SaaS companies, there's got to be a big percentage of them that have invested really heavily in content and inbound strategy. So I guess talk to me a little bit about the education process that you undertake when you first meet with your prospects. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. And, uh, you know, initially I was doing all my reach out to marketing um, and I would say, you know, um, there are about 40 different approaches, some of them highly innovative that you can actually create meetings for mar- for sales. And uh, and I found in most cases you're talking to content marketers um, and they don't really get the metrics that drive the business. So these are writers, publishers, they create content, they're graphic artists and so forth. So they don't, they just don't get it. Um, so unless you're talking to what I would call a high performance marketer that understands full phone metrics and really does drive meetings and opportunities, but I'd say 95% of the time, the content marketers don't get it. Um, so I, t- then I talk to sales. And sales will say to me all the time, we're not getting enough meetings. Um, And I always say to sales, if you take your top 100 prospects, how many of them do you have booked meetings for in the next 30, 60, 90 days? And the answer is always very few, um, sometimes none. So so sales sees the need for focus on generating meetings. um, And they they call it at-bats. They say, just get me an at-bat. And they live and die for at-bats. It it makes their life, it it gives them joy. Um, You know, it's kind of if you don't have meetings with prospects, you're dying in a sales role. Um, so, so they get it. Um, and what sales has done in the past is they've they've gone out to these kind of outsourced meeting setup companies, um, oftentimes in India. Um, and these companies just bang away at tens of thousands of prospects. And through the law of volume and velocity, they get a bunch of people to agree to a meeting, most of which don't show up, and there's no real commitment. So sales are willing to throw a lot of dollars at generating meetings, but they're doing it in the wrong way. So sales kind of says, well, we tried that with you know one of the five outsourced meeting management companies, and it didn't work. Um, now, when I explained to them... Um, you know, some of these new programs, and I'll describe some of them in a minute. Um, You know, sales always says, um, that's fantastic. Let's do it. Every one of them right now, press the button. And they flip it over to marketing. And I'd say 95 to 99% of the time, marketing immediately kills the program. Um, And you've got to hold sales accountable that if they want to do something, they have to own it and they have to manage it and they have to budget it. So flipping it over the fence um, makes sales really mad because marketing ends up killing it. Like I literally had one VP of sales of a major uh, webinar program. He loved the program. He flipped it over to his vice president of marketing. Uh, I met with her and then she came back to me and said, we're not focused on generating any prospect meetings this year. Um, we have all the we have all the customers we want. We just want to do some more customer penetration. So we're going to do some case studies. Now, the sales guy was desperate for prospect meetings. The marketing person, you know, didn't care or wasn't held accountable. Her accountability was to deliver a number of case studies and video interviews. So the problem is the marketing is held accountable to physically producing some content assets and sales. So what I've learned through my process is I go up the food channel to um, a senior sales guy. 
and or an SRO. And they get it to the point of we're going to do this. Uh, we don't really care who funds it. We're happy to fund it. We're going to bring marketing in on this initiative and we're going to drive it. Um, and that's when it happens. Um, or I talk to the CEO who just thinks this is such a no brainer. Let's make it happen. And marketing and sales align. But I would say sales is 100 percent behind these ideas all the time. And it's funny that marketing is so uh, critical of it. I would say that in general, sales and marketing are a little bit more aligned now because of account-based marketing. Um, it's brought them together to focus on accounts that they want to target, um, but they don't have one metric. Marketing tracks hundreds of metrics. Sales tracks hundreds of metrics. And I think what has to happen is both of them have to track one metric. And, and and work on one metric. And the, and, and the issue is the most important metric is not tracked explicitly by either party at all. It's amazing. This is an opportunity to dramatically ramp B2B sales effectiveness. Is, um, is net new prospect meetings kind of your, the tip of the spear or like if you were going to productize what you do, like when you show up with the Michael Phelan playbook at, a prospect or somebody that's a little further along in your sales process? Like, are you leading with this most times? Yeah, I, I, I that's a good half of my business is helping companies um, have meetings and engage with net new prospects. Now, some of that is purely for sales. They just want at bats. They want to generate opportunities. Some of it is because they want to validate their product and maybe they're a little bit early stage. They want to have some meaningful conversations with customers around the needs. Um, so there's a, a different reasons why people will want to engage with prospects. Um, they want to have a less salesy kind of conversation. They want to have a conversation more like I do moderated prospect meetings for them. So I bring them into meetings, having a discussion with the prospect. So it's a little bit more of a, you know, the prospect talking really openly about what they're trying to achieve. What are their goals? What are their output? What are they dealing with? So it's a kind of a new type of meeting a lot of times. So, so half it is like that. The other half of it is uh, pure go-to-market strategy. So I work with the Irish government and I work with business incubators. Um, this week, I've got 10 CEOs in town from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, these are 10 of the top startup and emerging grow companies, and they're coming in for a complete week uh, on intense go-to-market strategy. So we'll do sizing the market, developing your go-to-market plan, sales, marketing, operation, legal, tech, IP, everything you need to do to kind of come in the market and be successful and plan for that. Um, because most companies that come in from either Ireland or the UK or many countries in Europe, they really don't fully understand the complexity and the level of competitiveness in the US market. And they have to be very smart uh, about how to proceed. So, so I would say half of my work is kind of along those lines. And the other half is long um, getting getting my clients meaningful interaction with prospects, building relationships, building trust, and leveraging the results of that trust into content marketing that's relevant. So I I'm, I'm, want to chase a little bit of curiosity here, but I'm going to take a note so that when we circle back, um, maybe we could hit one or two of the 40 ways that you've come up with to be creative around getting meetings. Um, how did you set up your business? Like there's really interesting niche that you've found like can you tell me a little bit about the origin story of maybe the first time you said 
okay, somebody that I know is going to jump the ocean and come over here and enter the market and they need my help. Like I'm, I'm really curious about how you develop that side of the business. Yeah. It's interesting on the international side. Um, so I've always, you know, been back and forth. I grew up in Dublin. My family's in Dublin, so I've always been back and forth. I came over here in the mid mid eighties, and um, I've always thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to either help a company um, export a product or service from Ireland into the U.S.? Um, I'm going back and forth, so I said on one of my trips, let me go and meet with um, Enterprise Ireland. And Enterprise Ireland is a very large organization, about ten thousand employees. Their their role is to um, bring uh, Irish companies into the U.S. Ultimately, they want the Irish companies to grow in terms of employees based in Ireland, but they know that if they're very successful in the U.S. market, the manufacturing plant will be bigger, the headquarters will be bigger, um, and certainly they'll hire in the U.S. as well. Um, so I sat down with Enterprise Ireland, and uh, I got an introduction to some people there, um, and I, I, I kind of said to them, well, how are your companies doing in terms of coming in? And they said, well, you know, we go bring them to some trade shows. They meet some people, but they're not getting the kind of meaningful quality um, interactions. And some of them, they can't either validate their product. They can't get some early stage sales. They can't break through. You know, if you want to have a meeting with a Walmart or a Target, for example, exceedingly difficult. Um, there are only 100 retailers of significance there's about 50,000 companies trying to sell to them. Um, so they bang their head against the wall. They get very frustrated. And then they go back to Ireland and say, we can't get any traction. So what I said to them is, is let me do two things. Let me help to get your clients in front of prospects. Um, and two is let's do some thought leadership panels in or around major events. So we went down to, in this case, um, these are all retail, retail tech, ad tech kind of companies. Um, we went down to NRF, which is the big retail show in New York. Um, I pulled together a panel of executives from JC Penney's and from other retailers, analysts, and so forth. Um, and we kind of talked about you know where the market was going, um, but they got an opportunity to share with those folks. Listen, this is what we're doing. What do you think? Um, they got some feedback, and we had a packed event down there. Um, the Irish government was really pleased because it's very difficult to get retailers to attend and participate, but because of the nature of the quality of the panel and the quality of the discussion, and because we were so close to the venue, we were able to pack it out. Um, and then I went up to Northern Ireland and I uh, went to Belfast and uh, I hadn't been to Belfast since the Troubles. Uh, Belfast is a very changed world now and it's a fantastic city to visit and i met with business incubators over there um and they were actually thinking about you know how do i do a week-long program for um for my companies in boston and or new york and i said i'll put together that for you um and we put together it the first time it went really well. The companies loved it. Those companies since have grown and expanded and done very well. And this year will be our third year um, to do it. Although the coronavirus is driving us crazy, you know, many of our evening events have been canceled or some of our panels have been canceled, but we still get the CEOs to come in and they'll get they'll go through the whole program. It's just that the social part of it is canceled and, and been rescheduled largely this week. Got it. Yeah, I mean um – I actually was in Dublin and Belfast, um, I guess last year, two years ago, I took my uncle, my brother and my dad over to, to the open championship that was in Royal Port Rush. 
Um, so we did oh, nice. a little bit of a road trip over there. I mean, it's that Aer Lingus from Logan flight is a piece of cake. It's easier than going to the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's obviously a little bit more challenging flying over because you're flying all night than back. Um, but it's it's not too bad, really. Yeah. Um, let's jump back to so some of the maybe you'll share one or two of the really creative ways that you've developed to to try to drive some new meetings. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll talk about two. I'll talk about um, one called Magnum Marketing, and I'll talk about another one, which is kind of a uh, what I would call calls for a cause or charity oriented program. Um, and so Magnum Marketing, you know, this I learned about this when I worked for a lot of business buying teams at, at Iron Mountain, some of my clients. Um, what, what clients, prospects really want to know is what are the best practices of my peer companies. So um, it, you get asked that in every buying team. So I, I'll give you an example. When you talk to Target, um, Target wants to know what Sephora is doing um, because Sephora is is ranked the number one advanced marketing personalization retailer in the world. Uh, and Target does pretty well at that. Um, but when I, when I sat down with a Target executive and I, I said to him, um, he was a senior vice president. I said to him, what, why would you meet with a why would you meet with a vendor? And he goes, I get literally hundreds of vendors every single day. And they're like, hey, dude, you know, can I get five minutes of your time? And oh, I see you went to this college and that. They're trying everything and anything. And God bless them. It's hard to be a BDR. Um, and, you know, I think I, I think if they get any meetings, brilliant. Um, but what happens is there's so much noise and they're all doing things the same way. So I said to him, how many meeting, how many vendors do you meet a month? He said, maybe two or three of the hundreds that call them every day. So I said to him, why, why do you meet with the ones you meet? He said, they have to answer three questions. And so if they call me up on advanced marketing personalization, the first thing I would ask him is, how do you think Target is performing on advanced marketing personalization? Can you give me your assessment? What are we doing well and not? That eliminates 90% of the BDRs right there. Some of them can come back and say, I looked at your site. I like this. I signed up for your email. I signed up for your loyalty program. This is what you're doing well. This is the opportunity. If they answer that question, then the next question is, you know, give me an example of a company in my space that's doing dramatically better than me and tell me what they're doing better than me. And if you can answer that question, you get the final question about, you know, how could we potentially bridge that gap? Um, so you see the sense of the sophistication of the buyer and a sense of the lack of sophistication of most sellers. So what I, what I learned from that is that if you can define the practices of their best in class peers, they will meet with you. If you can give them a roadmap from where they're at to where the best in class companies are at, they'll meet with you. If you can give them the next step. So what I've done is develop this magnet marketing methodology. So when I sit down with a client, I say, what problem are you solving? Um, and let's say it's best practices and customer centricity. We define that in terms of the customer. And then I'll talk to about 50 key players in the industry about that. I'll, I'll give them $100 for their time. I'll invite them to a meeting. I bring my client into the meeting as the sponsor. Then I interview them for 15 minutes, and then my client gets to talk to them for 15 minutes and build a relationship with them. At the end of the call, we say, who else in your company cares about this problem? We get referrals and introductions. Then we send them an overnight package that has an invite back to the report out. It has a $100 gift card, and it has an activation offer or some um content acid 
from the company. Um, and then when we get the results of the survey, we go back and present that back to that client, ideally on site via dedicated webinar um, or via group webinar. And then we publish the results to the media. So it's like content marketing in reverse. It starts with the prospect meetings and the engagement. It's really a discovery call and ends with the content. So completely puts marketing on its head. It's like sitting in on an analyst call. If you think about it, when I was in, in a corporate sales role, I always thought, wouldn't it be great to sit in on an analyst call with my prospect? Um, because that's a credible, meaty discussion. And it also raises the bar for SDRs. They raise and they do very well in terms of having a more strategic discussion um, rather than a tactical, can I get a demo, which a lot of them kind of do. So um, so that's an example of magnet marketing. I call it magnet because you hold a magnet up to the market and you say, who's interested in solving this problem? Who's interested in the practices of your peers? Because if you're a target and you walk into the boardroom, somebody's going to ask you, why aren't we doing a better job like Sephora? And if you have an answer to that, that's great. Um, if you don't have an answer to that, you better go get one. Um, so I think that B2B vendors don't get that they're not interested in your case studies. That's at a later stage for validation. What they're interested in is can you profile the behaviors, practices, and success of their best of class peers? And the fascinating thing is if you can do that, they don't even care whether you're selling to them. They don't even care whether they're a customer. Um, you know. And after you do that, they'll say, well, how can you help? Um, what can you do? How can you help me bridge this gap? So it's a much more strategic discussion. So that's one program, content marketing. If you have any questions on that, I'll take them or I'll jump to the next one. Yeah, I do have some questions. I want, At the risk of, of interrupting our flow here, would you, um, if you're looking at the little camera icon on your side, would you kill your camera to see if we can save some bandwidth? The audio okay. has been mostly great, but there's been a couple of uh, pauses. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. All right, so let's give that a crack. So. The first question I have, Michael, is this may be irrelevant, but thinking about, do you think it's a, a good idea to have 22-year-old BDRs calling into these accounts that could be critical to your success? No. Um, you know, Maybe we, that was we, a leading question, but I, yeah. I thought you might say that. <laughs> no, I think it's a very... Um, you know, where, where, where some of them do well is kind of making personal connections to other millennial type buyers sometimes. Like, you know, they'll go in and look at, you know, if somebody's a basketball fan or recently graduated college or, you know, um, you know, so sometimes they can make those, you know, personal connections by looking at Facebook or, or Twitter, or, you know, finding some level of personal passion. Um, so there are some routes that they use, um, but the reality of it is most of them don't understand um, the client's business at a at a meaningful level. Most of them can't, like that target guy, um, most of them couldn't have that type of discussion. Um, and it's up to marketing to help enable them to have that or give them the assets to have that. So I think marketing can play a big role in that. Um, and it's also up to marketing to... Um, to give them something meaningful to say, because what, what typically happens is, you know, there'll be a white paper um, and it'll maybe a great white paper. Um, and, the, and the reps will reach out and say, what do you think of the white paper? And, you know, the customer will say or the prospect will say, I didn't get a chance to read it. What did you think about it? So, so that's when sales and marketing and training can help make sure that they understand it. 
not only that, but have a perspective on it. So if I replay that discussion as a BDR, um, I would say, geez, I'm glad you're interested in the topic. We've had great interest in the white paper. Let me highlight the three critical findings. And let me talk about uh, a great conversation I had with a customer just like you and what they thought about this aspect of it, right? So now, now you're actually becoming you know, an expert, and you're actually sharing your personal experience. So I think there's a lot that can be done to improve BDRs um, and how they reach out and the tools they have and the intelligence they have, uh, intelligence as perceived by the buyer. But I think most of them today, it's just bang away on the phones, bang away on emails, try and send as many communications. So it's a volume game. And I think when you think about strategic accounts, you don't want to play a volume game with them. So I would I would say that most of that effort today is wasted. I think you'd be better off have a smaller number of really high quality reps than have 20, you know, people with three to six months experience banging away on the phones. Yeah, I thought you might say that. I guess the uh, the next question on magnet marketing, like, I'm um, curious to see what part of like the human psychology does that tap into like that call or that offer of let me share with you what the best people you compete with are up to um, like that immediately makes me like my antenna goes up. I get like a little bit prickly and I start leaning a little bit closer to listen to that. What's in there from like a psychological perspective that we're tapping into by using that? Yeah, so um, there's there's fear. You know, one is one is I'm fearful that I don't understand the best practices of my competitor um, at the level I should. Um, so one is a little bit fear. Um, another one is really good marketers, um, really good product people uh, have a fascination and, and an interest in the competitors. Um, you know, really bad product marketers uh, are arrogant and just not the competitors. But if you really talk to someone who they really are very interested in anything to do with you know, the competitors. So I'll give you a good example. When I was at Staples, I was head of marketing at Staples and um, we interviewed a vice president of, uh, of marketing from Office Max. And at that time, they were our key competitor. And so HR said, well, who would like to meet with this person? And 29 people signed up. Um, two of which were, had anything got to do with the interview. Um, the other 27 were just trying to figure out what is Office Max doing well? Um, you know, what are they doing we're not doing? And trying to get at competitive intelligence. Now, of course, HR stepped in and go, guys, the, this is illegal. You can't really do this. Um, and they, the, the 27 were pushed off the panel. But the point being is, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a massive insight. Um, and, and that is a huge bait. So I'd say fear insight, um, wanting to know who's doing it better and why to be a better professional, but also to be able to answer that question when you go into the senior management and boardroom, um, because you're always trying to improve towards the best in class. Now, if you're Amazon, there is no one better than you in some respects. So you're setting a bar beyond best in class. Um, and you're saying, you know, we're, we're going from 
two-day shipment to one-day shipment. No one else is doing one-day shipment. We're going to same-day shipment. Um, and, you know, so they're they're pushing the envelope beyond what anyone else is doing. Um, but they're doing it in a, in, a, in a goal that's either towards their competitors or that's meeting their customer needs in a better way. Um, you could also do a best-in-class study of meeting customer needs, um, and you could also identify customer needs that are not been met. That's kind of a little bit kind of different. Got it. Uh, should we transition to calls for a cause? Yes. Um, so this is a fascinating category, um, which I would put a few different ideas under. Um, and I'll give you a good example of, of one that's actually in use right now and it's working well in Boston. Um, so this is a company called Rapid7. And Rapid7 have two different programs. One's called Calls for a Cause and the other is the Veterans Day program. The Calls for a Cause, they can reach out to any charity. Um, they can reach out to any prospect. They can look at their profile or on either LinkedIn or on Facebook. And if they find, for example, that they're... Um, they, you know, they're running an animal shelter or they're on a board of an animal shelter or something like that. Um, they can reach out and say, we've got this calls for a cause program. Um, we want to share a, an idea around a new product we're working on. Want to get your feedback on it. Um, we're looking to grow um, the awareness of this product. Um, and as a thank you, we'd be happy to give $50 towards um, that specific charity. Um, and that's a very successful program for them. Um, one I like even more is, is a Veterans Day program. Um, so every Veterans Day, about a week before Veterans Day, they identify in their database of prospects and in their database of customers, uh, everyone that's a veteran. Um, and they reach out to them and say, you know, thank you for your service to our country. Um, we, we respect veterans. We have a program where we donate to veterans charities. Um, you know, I, I see you're associated with this charity. Please, you know, let, let me know. Would you like us to donate to that charity or a different charity? Um, that's all they really say. Um, and invariably, the veteran in question um, is, um, you know, says, oh, you know, let's get on the phone or let's chat or whatever it may be. Um, and they're appreciative of, you know, the reach out and they're appreciative of the donation. They say, well, tell me a little bit about what you guys do. And it's nearly always relevant to them. And they have a chat. Sometimes it might be, a, a prospect, but sometimes they say, you know what, I might not be the best person for that, but you could reach out um, to such and such in my company. Um, so it's creating a discussion that's absolutely nothing to do with the product or the need they're fixing. Um, and, and this is the major message that I'm trying to get across to B2B sales and marketing companies is that you got to turn these into programs. You can't just rely on one sales rep doing one thing. So I went into one big tech company the other day and we did an audit. They had 19 different ways they generated meetings. Um, and none of them, there was no training on any of them. There was no programs on any of them. And they weren't cross-pollinating between the new reps coming in. So some of the best reps in the in the country were doing things that the other reps were not doing. Um, and so I, I think that the big opportunity is to turn these into programs. So Calls for a Cause and Veterans Day is a program. Magnet Marketing is a program. It can be offered to all reps um, and it can be used in all circumstances. So B2B marketers adopt, say, five or 10 different programs, support them with technology and use them to scale. Um, then they'll develop programs with the only result or output is a meeting and they're not reliant on, you know, 
it's that's what they're designed to do. I also think marketing people are highly creative. Um, and if given the right direction, leadership and metrics, I think if marketing people were told, I want you to come up with five programs that just generate meetings for our sales team. And we will judge you with that. We'll give you the money. We'll give you the creative resources, we'll give you what you need. Um, and I think that they would be able to do that. So fundamentally, it's a leadership issue um, where the leadership have to identify the broken pipeline. They have to identify the single metric and they have to direct both sales and marketing together to work on it and solve it. And they have to say, and don't do it on a one-off, do it on a programmatic basis, use technology to support it. And I can guarantee you that if a company's got a hundred meetings per year and they do this right, they could easily end up with 500 meetings uh, per year. You could easily go 5X on this. I love that. Could you say a little bit more about how to take like the, if you show up somewhere like the, the example you gave where they've got reps doing 19 different things to generate meetings, but there's no system in place. How do you coach somebody? I know you mentioned a lot about asking for marketing and giving people the support they need to do that. But like, how would you coach somebody into making that a program or a process or a system that can be implemented across an entire sales team? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes the really junior level BDR type managers, um, you know, they don't really know how to do that. So I think that is can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, and they don't know how to structure programs and, and, and support them. So, um, you know, so one recently said to me, well, you know, we got a lot of other things going on and we got a new VP of sales coming in and the new marketing guy is going to solve all these problems. And then we hired this new brand agency and so forth and so on. And I said, well, today, less than 1% of your meetings are driven by all this stuff. Um, I said, if those people are brilliant, it, it might get to 1.5% of your meetings driven by this stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the question is you need you need someone senior enough in the organization to lead and drive that. So the question is, where does this sit? Does it sit in sales operations? Does it sit in revenue operations? Does it sit in sales enablement? Um, does it sit in marketing? Um, so I, I think they're... Um, I think if the sales leader said make it happen and pulled in, let's say, sales ops, um, sales enablement, sales training, marketing, and a salesperson in the room and said, guys, the first thing you do is analyze what what the 15 or 20 different things you're doing is, come back to me with the top five, um, and then we'll agree to that. And then let's come up with a way of, of driving that from a meeting perspective. So for example, on the Veterans Day program, um, what would need to happen for that to be a program, right? Um, there probably have to be a pool of money put aside. And in many cases, these companies are already given a ton of money to charity. Why not give money to charity that can drive your revenue, right? At the same time. So mm -hmm. in some cases, you can just take existing money and reallocate it. So maybe you say to the reps, hey, you can give, you know, uh, up to 10 different prospects a $50 donation. You know, you put a system in place where they could access that. You give them some messaging around that. You give them some training around that. You have some programs, people who have sold that effectively, you know, come together. So you kind of launch it as a sales program. Um, 
as as things progress, you could put tracking technology and metrics behind that. For example, how many times did we make this offer? How many meetings did we get? How many of those meetings closed? So you could certainly put some, you know, some measurement behind that. But I do agree that your your average BDR manager that's probably two years as a BDR and just got promoted, um, you know, can they think strategically enough to put these programs in place? I think many of them think today, well, that's my job. If Joe's doing a great idea, I'm going to tell Sally, right? You know, they think and they huddle in these groups. So they may do some level of kind of sharing, but um, but I think they do struggle a little bit to how to make it programmatic. And I think that, you know, we need to help them do that um, a little bit. Yeah, we need to bring some resources to bear to help them do that. Uh, a slightly selfish question here, but if you were to apply some of this methodology, even thinking about just getting meetings, net new prospect meetings, and you're talking to a brand new startup that has a few co-founders and another person or two that are really trying to see if they're on to something. It, not to completely put you on the spot, but how would you think about it for like a smaller team? Because what I hear when I hear sales enablement and sales training and BDRs, you're talking about significant headcount. So yeah, what, how do you think about it for a much smaller team that is just getting started? Yeah, so I've had situations where, you know, I've got a company in Europe, they have no resources at all in the United States. And the CEO is trying to, um, trying to get a sense of, you know, is there an opportunity here for me? Or actually, a lot of times I need to close a couple of US sales fast to justify my next steps. Um, so, uh, you know, in those cases, um, what I've done is, you know, I've got those CEOs in front of, you know, 10 or 12 prospects. Um, and we'll either come to the conclusion that in one case, the product was really not up to speed with the US standards. And it became pretty, pretty evident that, um, that, the market was much more fractured and specialized and you know that there really wasn't a fit between what he was offering in the US market and that's fine you know so he needs to know that so he doesn't blow a lot of money in other cases you know um like i was working with a a mobile apps development company and a low code no code mobile apps and they're a small company um what they can do is is allow customization of an app so once you've the code you can change you know, any information collected in the field, you can change, you know, what you're telling them to do, um, taking pictures, you know, connecting to different systems. So very versatile, you know, app. And they wanted to know what it would take to come into these big, big applications. So the application we looked at was um, field merchandising reps. So there are literally tens of thousands of merchandising reps that go into Walmart, Kmart, um, you know, every day and they take pictures of uh, signage and they restock shelves and they make sure everything's perfect for, say, P&G. Um, they're all outsourced. They all use mobile apps. Um, so this company wanted to wanted to see if it was really a fit for them. Um, and they, you know, they, they found stuff that was a fit, but they also found out that they're going to have some serious back-end um, integration into all of these enterprise apps, such as payroll, such as, you know, mobile tracking of reps, such as geo-targeting and other things. Um, so they were able to kind of determine, 
um, what they needed to do to be successful um, in the market. They did get some opportunities to bid on some products, but they weren't quite ready for that yet. Um, so, so we can, you know, we can do those kinds of things. What I find actually more typical in a real small organization where you have a couple of founders and, you know, maybe a VC and maybe an angel involved, um, you know, where the founders are doing the sales themselves, you know, they just can't wait to hire the first salesperson. <laughs> and most cases they hire the wrong salesperson. Um, but if they have any money, they throw it at, the salesperson um, before they validated the market, before they finalized their positioning, before they've got a clear pricing strategy, they go and hire the first sales rep. Um, and I, I think that this is a good methodology to interject before you do that. Um, and some of them will do that, but a lot of them opt to um, just hire a sales rep because uh, they want to get it off their shoulder. They don't want to be responsible for doing it. Um, and they want to have a guy that's going to take all that weight. Um, but in a startup early stage company, that's a tough hire to get right. Um, so I encourage the founders to do a little bit more work before you hire someone. Um, make sure you've got a fit. Uh, make sure you know the customer needs. Make sure you get your positioning and your strat. Get some early stage customers up and running so that when you bring that person on, A, you know who, who to hire, but B, you, you don't have that salesperson trying to figure out how to position the company. You don't have that salesperson trying to figure out what's the right product set. You don't have that salesperson coming back to you all the time when I pitched the product and it didn't meet their needs um, because that's a huge waste of time and resources. So, so I do encourage them to do that. So it can be done in a very small company startup kind of nearly it can be done with no salespeople at all say in the u.s market where you're connecting people internationally over time zones it can be done in that smaller environment so i think that's a fair a fair point i gave you a larger example but maybe that's a kind of a more smaller example yeah that's really helpful i guess um one thing i'm really curious about is what which one of the 40 or, or which some of your secret stuff that you're using to go out and get meetings at places like Rapid7 and some of these other big companies in Boston? Like what, how are you using this stuff yourself? Yeah, the one I've one I personally use the most um, is is the Magna Marketing methodology. So I've probably done twelve different Magna Marketing programs for companies. Um, for one particular company, um, they're Exchange Solutions. They're they're in the um, personalization space, um, but they gave me their top hundred accounts, um, and that they. Most of them they couldn't get into. Um, they said, hey, we, we need you to get into these accounts. I got them into 85 of the 100 accounts. Uh, and in some cases, got the meetings with, um, you know, four or five different people. Um, subsequently resulted in their big, biggest corporate sale to date, which was Brooks Brothers. Um, they didn't have a large retailer customer in their Canadian company in the U.S. And so they got their largest customer out of this program. And what was interesting is the CEO um, was a big believer in net new prospect meetings, which was great. Um, and so he said to both the entire marketing team and me, um, how many meetings can you generate? And the company generated 70, 87 different meetings. And I think 84 of them came from the Magna marketing program. So you really get a sense of the traditional marketing stuff, um, 
really doesn't generate this. So I think I think magnet marketing is highly effective. I think the charity one is highly effective. Um, I think high highly personalized reach out can be very effective. Um, one of the other ones I haven't talked about as much would be um, benchmarking and before and after comparison. So if you're, let's say you're selling a technology to a company and you go in and you audit their site and you say, you know, here are the five things that you can enhance or do better. So it's a form of an audit, right? So you, you're really kind of looking at their site and you're coming back showing them their site and what they can do, or you're looking at their email and showing them, like I work with a company right now and they, they do enhance share via email. So when you, when you use their technology, it shares the full email um, through social media and then tracks that all the way through to purchase. Um, so we could say, well, when you send out your email, here's what share looks like on social media. When you use this technology, here's what share looks like. And guess what? You can track it all the way through to sale. So if a retailer sends out a million email and they get 20% share on social media, um, that's a massive uptake, right? And the shares are endorsed shares, right? These are people sharing it to their network. So the level of engagement on the 20% is even going to be more. So the question is, can you show that on a side-by-side -side basis? Here's what it would look like without, and here's what it would look like with. So I'll give you one example that I did, which was for, I was working with one of my clients and they sold uh, remote technology care. So a combination of technology platform and remote tech servicing business customers. Um, and they had Comcast as a customer and they did a great job. They wanted to go after AT&T. So we did a side-by-side -side comparison of what AT&T service looked like and what Comcast service looked like. Um, and we sent it to AT&T and Comcast had serviced the customer in one point five hours, AT&T took 14 hours. Um, and we pointed out all the customer frustration, all the gaps. We even pointed out to AT&T that their current vendor was violating the AT&T policy by using unapproved tools and all kinds of different stuff. Now, we're really shocking them by putting you know, the reality that they had refused to meet with my client for two years. And, and the first reaction was, how dare you make us look bad? Do you know we're AT&T? Um, and the second reaction was they send us their JD Power study on how good they are. And their third reaction was, you need to apologize for making that video because you made us look bad. So we apologized for making the video. And then they said, well, having said all that, um, we would like to talk to your client. And we, we do think the technology is interesting. Um, so, so this is the, you know, the ability to do side by side comparisons. And this is not something that BDRs can do, right? Um, so this is something that the company needs to do is show how you can improve the current situation, benchmark against a competitor. Um, you know, so all this area of audits, benchmarking, indexing, um, is a very powerful area and very few companies use it. Probably the best example I've seen of anyone using it is a company called Sail Through. It's S-A-I-L-T-H-R-U. And they're in the personalization space. And what they do is they go out and look at the top 100 retailers 
and they talk to consumers who, who buy from those retailers and they have them evaluate how personalized the service is and rank it and rate it. And then they come up with an index from t- one to a hundred. Um, and then they go out to the market saying, do you want to know what your score is? Um, do you want to know how you compare to best in class? Um, we'll do a deep dive. And they've found a tremendous response to that. So they've become in essence, um, the analyst company. They've become the research company. Um, they've become the insights company. And what happens every year when they release their study, not only do the CMO want to see the study to see how they're doing, um, but a lot of times the CFO or CEO wants to see the study because they use this in their um, you know, in their investor briefs and so forth and so on. And they use this as a metric to measure their progress on personalization. So now this company has become incredibly valuable to retail, is getting tons of meetings, um, not only with their buyer, but with the C-suite. Um, and, you know, they're the only company I know of thousands of B2B companies that's smart enough to do this strategy. Um, but it's brilliant and it plays out very well. Um, so, so I think that there are, you know, what we're doing in the world of sales and marketing is just a factory mentality. Um, it's let's bang out more content. Let's hire more BDRs. Um, you know, and if I talked to a CMO and he missed his number and I said, well, what are you doing next year? He goes the same thing. We're just going to do it better. Well, doing the same thing better is not going to make your numbers. Um, and you know, you need a, you need to smarter approach. You need a more customer centric approach. Um, so I would say the world of sales and marketing has got very similar. Most of these companies are doing the same thing and it's time for a more sophisticated strategy. So I think the area of auditing and benchmarking before and after comparison and indexing is another big opportunity for companies. I love that. And just to wrap up, Michael, I guess I get a sense that um, you're having a lot of fun doing this too. Like somebody handing you yes, a list of a of hundred accounts and saying, let's see how many you can get into. That seems like just from speaking to you for a short period here, it seems like that's really fun for you. It's, it's a hunt. And, uh, and some of them are even tougher than that. They give you the ones that they are completely non-responsive. And, and the reality is they're, they're, it's not that my client is reaching out to them in a bad way. It's just that the volume of vendor clutter is so high. So when you come in and you say, hey, I'm an independent research person. I'm doing a study on best practices in this. I'll give you $100 for half an hour, and I'll give you the results of the study. We'll have an intelligent business-focused conversation. We'll share insights. Um, um, the vendors themselves can't do that, right? Um, so we're coming at it from a credible outside perspective. So I think that some of these vendors, what they think is if they change a word in a text, it's going to make a huge difference. But I think what they're not accepting is the clutter is so high, it doesn't really matter what you do. And it's very hard for them to accept that because if you if you, if you accept that, you say, well, why are we spending all this money on sales and marketing? Um, we're wasting 90% of it. Um, and also, if you accept that, then you tell your investors that you're not in control of your own destiny. Um, and they won't, they're not willing to say that our engine is broken. They're not willing to say pipeline's broken. They're not willing to say content marketing doesn't generate meetings. They're not willing to say sales doesn't have a programmatic way of expanding its best ideas. So they keep cranking away at what they're doing. Um, but at some point, they got to start realizing that 
this isn't working anymore and leadership needs to step in um, and take a stronger role in terms of driving differentiation. And the, the good news is there's a, there's 40 different approaches they can use. I mean, they're, you know, I'm happy to sit down with any of them and bring them through it. Um, whether they do business with me or not, I'll bring them through. This is what companies are doing to drive meetings. And, uh, some of them are are really interested in hearing that, and some of them just have their you know their blinders on, and they're just not interested. Is there anything you want to get in the last minute here before we wrap? The final thing I would say is you know for companies kind of interested in this area, I think the best way to start is is to just do an audit. Simple, um, just look at the last hundred meetings. I come in and do that, um, and you know, and let's find out what exactly is driving your meetings today. Um, and I'm happy to work with companies to do that. Let's at least understand that. I think you will be amazed when you see it, um, and I think that this concept will come to life very quickly. But as a as a sales leader, as a marketing leader, if you can't tell um, what's driven your last hundred meetings. Um, then there's a problem. So do the audit, um, get the facts, understand the current situations, and then, you know, we can go from there. Awesome. Well, I want to say thank you, Michael, so much. I got a ton out of that. I was feverishly taking notes and I need to listen back to this and uh, put a little bit more. I feel like personally, I get distracted by a lot of the things that you mentioned when in reality, if the killer metric is going to be new net new prospect meetings. I need to rethink what I'm up to also. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Tom. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.